listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. All right, everybody. Welcome to the GGTMC. We are on the air, baby. Right, ready to rock and roll. Oh man, <laughs> I probably sound more awake than I actually am. All right, there we go. <laughs> you half a cup in yet? Uh, yeah, I'm half of something in. <laughs> well, hopefully it's coffee. Hopefully it's I'm half a line in. Nice. <laughs> what is this white substance? <laughs> uh, that that sounds. It's not Ajax. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, okay, so we are back for another action-packed episode of the GGTMC. This week we are doing. Uh, ooh, man, I, I don't think I wrote down the years, but I believe the the killing. If I'm right, it was a Stanley Kubrick film, 1956, right? Yep. Is this the first time we've done a Stanley Kubrick film on the show? I think it is, which is pretty incredible. That's pretty bizarre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, yeah, okay. So the killing, nineteen fifty-six. Uh, we're going to review the uh, Criterion Blu-ray release of this, and then uh, final score, nineteen eighty-six. I believe. Thirty years later, Arizel, keeping it classy. Yeah, Arizel, but very similar filmmakers in a lot of ways. Absolutely, I'd agree. <laughs> yes, Arizel, the Indonesian Stanley Kubrick. Yes. <laughs> We'll call him that to going forward. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, uh, starring Christopher Mitchum. Uh, some good stuff to talk about in that one as well. So <laughs> we'll have a <laughs> we'll have some fun conversation today. All right. So uh, I think that's about all I got as far as what we're going to be doing today. It's nothing. No news. No nothing to report. Well, hang on. Ugh. There we go. And uh, <laughs> a little indigestion this morning. Uh, what 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 are we what have you been watching? What have you been watching, Will? Uh, it seemed like it was a week of documentaries and kids movies. I didn't really get much in besides that stuff. Um, week started pretty good. I watched a documentary that you'd seen last year that you quite enjoyed. I watched it on Netflix instant, the American version. It should be said going forward, anything I watch on Netflix is on the American version. <laughs> yeah. There's no point in watching the Canadian one. Yeah. Um. So I watched Pulling John, which isn't a documentary about uh, hookers and the men who solicit them. <laughs> yeah, no. It, it, it's a documentary about arm wrestling. And uh, John, I think Zerang or something, John. Anyway, guy's been the world champion uh, arm wrestler. for the, He's just loomed so large over the sport for the past, I think, about 25 years. Yeah. Never been defeated. Uh, he was in over the top. Um and it just looks at him, this Russian phenom, and this uh, this man from the great state of West Virginia, this other young guy, and, and just how their paths kind of are all going to converge uh, in Warsaw, Poland, at this um, this tournament. And it's it's a really, really, really good documentary. It's uh, because the sport's kind of on the, on the fringes. Um, they're very much you know working class guys. Um, 
it, it, I had said to you, uh, if this film came out this year, it would be definitely be in my top 30. I really dug it, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, one of my favorite things about it, it's almost like a, it's almost like a, like a, like a sports movie mm-hmm. in the way it kind of sets itself up, you know, for the final showdown and, uh-huh. and everything. So, yeah, it's, no, it's really good, man. I'm thinking about revisiting it again because I just had so much fun with it. And uh, the Russian dude, just, he's, he's, he's totally GGTMC. <laughs> When that motherfucker, he's, there's like a, I don't know what it's called, like some sort of a bar or a pole. This guy is so strong that he puts his arms on the pole and the pole's sideways on the wall. And he, he lifts himself so he's sideways and without even like quivering. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just unbelievable how yeah. strong that, that guy could rip our head off. Yeah, he's got these training regimens that are like straight out of like Rocky Four. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People tie like three or four guys tied to his arm, and he's pushing them down. It's just it's it's amazing. You know, it's almost like it. Like, is this is this real? You know, I mean, is this really happening? You know, so. Yeah, I liked him a lot, though, man. I mean, yeah. I think be, being older guys, the young guy from West Virginia, you know, kind of. He, he's sort of the even though they don't paint him as a heel, thankfully, because it's not a heel. He has his own. You can tell obviously the motivation for him doing what he does, but. Um, I really like the Russian. I mean, I like the main guy. Too. It's, it's just a great fucking documentary, man. There's there's a lot of great people to uh, the three of them are, are very interesting to watch and see their motivation and where they're going and where they've been. And yeah, it's really, really good. good. So. Really good. One. I'm glad you like it. Oh yeah. And then right after that, it was one of those things where it was like twelve o'clock, and I was kind of betwixt in between. I didn't think I quite had enough time to watch another documentary, um, but I was going to try anyway. And I ended up staying awake for the whole thing, pretty much, except for about 10 minutes. And this is uh, Rising Sun, the story of Christian Hosoi, of course. Christian Hosoi, legendary skateboarder, uh, arguably the first rock star of um, skateboarding. He kind of brought it to uh, pizzazz that hadn't really been seen. Um, really good documentary as well. Uh, being a guy who kind of, you know, I was young. I mean, I was six, seven I remember reading Thrashing and, you know, just kind of being fascinated by the culture and Pal Peralta boards and all this stuff. It really, uh, it was really great to look at this documentary. And, uh, of course, Hosoi really got into some trouble um, in his life uh, later on. So the rise and fall, basically. Yeah. And it's it's an excellent documentary. I would also highly, highly recommend people check it out. Nice. Um, oh, I wrote that down twice. Fuck. So nice you wrote it down twice. Wrote it twice. <laughs> then I decided to keep the documentary stream rolling, and I watched Dark Days, which is a documentary from 2000, uh, directed by Mark Singer. Uh, it's a guy who basically takes, um, takes a journey underground, literally, to a subterranean, it's not Chud, uh, <laughs> or, uh, or what's the other one, uh, the British one, um, some raw meat. It's not those. It's it's a real story about uh, some homeless people that live basically underneath the an Amtrak station in this kind of subterranean little shanty town they've built. Yeah, and it's pretty grim stuff. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've been meaning to watch that one. It's because it's on Netflix Instant. I think it is. That's where I saw it. I've been meaning to watch it, but uh, just never ever got around to it because I didn't know if I wanted to go down that road. Well, here's the thing, and the Hosoi one's also on. On instant and soy is H O S O I. Case be one, check it out. Um, dark days is dark subject matter, but I think Singer does a good job. He doesn't wallow in the misery of it. In fact, 
quite the opposite. It looks at these people and just their day-to-day lives and kind of their struggle and them trying to make some money and collecting bottles and keep their, their houses clean and stuff and some of the challenges they go through as opposed to really miring and wallowing in the muck. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's a lot lighter than you would expect, but still there's always that reminder that we're underground right now and these people live in conditions that are kind of horrifying. Yeah. But they maintain a certain dignity and um, a structure about their lives and there's some pretty poignant moments in it. It's, it's really a good documentary. Right. Um, then I decided to shift tones completely and... Uh, we were going to do a family like we do thing here called picnic. Like I was telling you before, we lay the the uh, blankets out and we have dinner downstairs and watch a movie. Usually a kid's one, of course, because, uh, you know, my kids are awake when we have dinner, uh, which is always conducive to them finishing. Right. <laughs> so we did all, do- all we did a all dogs go to heaven, which is also an instant, uh, not the burnt film. I wanted to necessarily be watching, um, <laughs> but you know, it would do, uh, this doesn't hold up very well. I think it's cheap. It feels almost like Burton and Dumb Louise are like, oh, these, these animated kids' movies are pretty popular right now. Why don't we make one? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it doesn't really hold up. It's okay. But um, it's interesting to see Dog Heaven is, is covered with glitz and, and colored dusty rose. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Um, an animated movie that does hold up from you know maybe 10 years ago and I have to say it's vaulted to the top of my uh, favorites list at least ones that that I'm not colored by nostalgia from my own childhood uh, was another one in fact it was a sort of an impromptu double bill because William was he still wanted to watch another movie he was he was awake and you know it was like 8.30 at night or something I thought well you know it's the summertime he's going to be in school soon we might yeah. as well let him stay up so right I figured it was a perfect chance to, to heap uh, the Iron Giant on him, which I had never seen. I know some people in our community are big fans of. Uh, so we watched it, and man, we all, me and my wife and him all loved it. Yeah. It's really good. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen it before. Yeah. Oh, man, it's so good. It's so good. It's traditionally animated. Brad Bird, of course, director of The Incredibles. Um, I and highly and recommend. Ghost Protocol. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um I thought Bird had done more for Pixar, to be honest with you. Uh, he did Ratatouille. Did he do Ratatouille? Yeah, he, he did, which I think I'm going to watch now. I, I have to be honest, I wasn't interested in it a few years ago, but uh, it's, it seems as if between Incredibles and Iron Giant, William has his very first favorite film director. So, nice, nice. Yeah, so I mean, I love this film. I can't wait for the blue. I think they capture sort of Rockwellian and kind of like uh, Eisner comics and just the nostalgia of of the 50s so perfectly. It's it's a really poignant film, and it's really, really good stuff, so I highly recommend it. Um, we, then we finally did, ended our week with uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks Chipwrecked, which is a pretty... Um, <laughs> pretty mediocre movie, to be polite. Um, but the thing that made it sort of vaulted into sort of more memorable is uh, every week here in our area they do like movies in the park where you can go with your kids and they have a screen outside and you can watch movies and sit in your your, uh, your lawn chairs and just watch the movie yep. and that's what it was so as a family with our um, my wife's brother and sister and their kids we all took the kids and, and watched the movie so it's uh, yeah it's not the greatest um, I like Jason Lee a lot mm-hmm. and he plays of course um, uh, not uh, Simon what's his name John 
No, David, Dave, Dave, that's right. Yeah, Dave, Dave. Dave. Seville, right? Seville? Dave Seville, that's right. The long-suffering <laughs> father right. figure of the chipmunks. Yes. Um, which is ironic because I did sort of a Jason Lee double bill because he's heavily featured in <laughs> Rising Sun, The Legend of Christian yeah. Hosoi, because he was a skateboarder. Right, right, yeah. Right? So it's kind of odd that there's that through line for me with him. But, um, yeah, Chipwrecked, you could do worse. It's it's not offensive as, as some kids' movies, but it's... <laughs> It's clearly, you know, bottom feeder material as yeah. far as kids' movies go, but just not quite at the bottom. I'm starting to think that maybe I should write down the fact that my, my son's going through a serious Toy Story phase right now. Nice. With, uh, you know, he loves Buzz. I'll hear him wake up sometimes from a nap going, Buzz? That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I'll write down Toy Story 2 or 3 like every, like every week because I think I watch both of them at least once a week. Uh, you probably should. How do, you, how do you finally hold up when you've seen them and you know the beats? Like I know they're good, really great films, but well, it's funny. Toy Story two, you know, once you see Toy Story three, uh, it's just amazing the the leaps in technology, how cheap Toy Story two looks. It's amazing when you go back and watch the older Pixar, mm -hmm. how much stuff has changed. Uh, I still love Toy Story two the most of the three. Uh, I've never seen two or three. Yeah, I've always, I've always, I've always liked two the most. Um, but both of them are very good, and you know, just it, you know, the heat. He's just into it right now. Yeah, that's just what he's into. Yeah, he, he well, got, that, and what's crazy is he got into it all on his own. We didn't push it on mm -hmm. him or anything. He just kind of grabbed it off the shelf one day. Because mm -hmm. you guys uh, have the blues, right? Well, I don't have the blue of two. I just have the regular. Uh, which the way he handles it, I'm kind of glad I don't have the blue. I have a theory. Remind me to tell you about the double packs, like the blue standard DVD editions. I'll tell you my theory. I've been meaning to say it on air for months, so go ahead. Well, I got a theory, too. I always buy the combo packs, so that way I use the DVD and keep the blue in storage. <laughs> because the kids put their, their fingerprints all over the disc. Yeah. Even though That's blue, exactly it. Yeah, Blu-rays are much harder to scratch and mess up than mm -hmm. uh, regular DVDs, but... Um, Still, you know, so there is the perception of it being a blue, therefore, it's a fragile creature. Yes, delicate, delicate, but like, no, that's it, man. I, I thought about that because remember on air, I think you and I were talking, we we're like, who wants to buy a Blu ray DVD double feature <laughs> or a um, double disc? Who would buy that? Why do they make that? And then I was in the van with the kids, and we had a thing, and I was like, this is why, yes, because my kid. You know, my two kids, the way they handle discs. Now, William's getting better, mind you. I'm teaching him proper DVD holding techniques, yeah. but, you know. Well, my son's pretty awesome because he's trying. He's been watching me do it, so he watches me, you know, stick my finger in the middle of the hole, which sounds perverted. Yes. And, but, uh, and then put, you know, my thumb on the out, outer rim, right? Which also sounds which perverted. sounds perverted. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a Wednesday night in West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> With a zombie, baby. Uh but he sees me do it, so he, you know, when he when it opens up, he'll be there, and you know, he he'll say uh, me, he'll say he'll say Landon, and then he'll he'll stick his finger in the in the hole, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, pick it up. But of course, you know, his fingers are very small, so he picks it up and he ends up palming the whole thing. Yeah. But uh, no, he does he does very good. He does actually really good. You know, we taught him, you know, that it's a delicate thing, so we always have to say easy, you know, because yeah, kids that's at, the sort of the word that you yeah, use, yeah. Kids at two and three and four years old, they don't know their own strength, so. Yeah. They are, you know, wrecking balls. They are, man. All right. That's good. Well, I'm glad that uh, he's digging that. I know William's same thing. He's kind of, he's really into Toy Strike 2, and we ended up doing a birthday party. And I'm glad, secretly, that William seems to prefer Woody, because I like Woody more than Buzz. Yeah. I don't, I don't like one over the other. I just, uh, 
this, you know, I enjoy the story of the film. I, I enjoy the the idea that toys are there to serve a child. I like that idea. Yeah, it is really great. It's, it's, a good it's idea. beautiful and it's poignant. And yeah, those movies uh, have an, certainly a deeper meaning now that I have. Yes. Kids. Yes. Yep. And you too. So is that everything? That's everything, gay. Okay, I only watched one other film outside of the two for the show. It was a busy week, and I've been watching a lot of TV and getting used a lot to of Misfits for Sammy. <laughs> yeah, I've been catching up with the uh, Misfits <laughs> on Hulu Plus, uh, a show I like, I adore quite a bit. Um, so, uh, yeah, I recommend everybody check it out. All three seasons on Hulu Plus. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, changing hours again, back to the old shift, back to the old ways. Um, uh, you know, I just haven't had time to really kind of sink into some stuff. And to be honest with you, it was a weird week because I, I wanted to watch a lot of films, but like I couldn't really get motivated to watch a lot of films. And, and you know, TV for me is always, you know, the fail safe. I'll fall back on that when I'm just not really in the mood to get involved in a narrative. So, mm-hmm. um, even though it's odd when you think about it, because I watch five episodes of a TV, I could watch a five hour film. Yeah. But but it's just it's just one of those things you know where TV's a little bit easier easier to digest. So it's easier to multitask with TV too because you don't have to invest as much. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I did watch a film that I had no interest in watching. It just kind of came in the uh, the old Netflix Blu-ray uh, nice. popped up in the mail called uh, Jeff Who Lives at Home. Oh. Direct, uh, directed by the Duplass brothers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So stars uh, Jason Siegel, um, kind of the uh, I don't know if he's the it comedy go to guy, but anyway, he's got uh, what's his name in there too the the Nard Dog uh, from <laughs> uh, from the Office. I can't remember his yeah. name off the top of my head. Ed, uh, Ed Helms. Yeah, Ed Helms. There you go. But anyway, um, so I'm, I, try, I put this in. I thought it was going to be a pretty standard film. It's about eighty three minutes long, and I ended up liking this film a lot. Nice. As a matter of fact, it's one of my favorite films I've seen so far this year. Oh, I definitely want to check it out because it looked solid from the trailers. But now that you're giving it some love, I'm definitely going to check it out. Well, I've never seen a Duplass Brothers film. Ever. Me neither. Uh, I know of them. I know they're part of the quote-unquote mumblecore movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was going to check out Cyrus. never got around to it. And it uh, seems like there was another one I was going to check out they did. But anyway, I watched this one. And there's some parts of it that are, you know, kind of... A little maudlin, you know, a little, you know, a little Hollywood. But at the same time, man, the characters, there's a really, really good message in the film. And it just made me, it just kind of reaffirmed my beliefs that human beings can be good people. I know that sounds crazy from a film sometimes, but, you know, every now and then, you know, I'm not saying that, I, you know, I'm not a total misanthrope, but at the same time. I, you You're know, not Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I'm not Stanley Kubrick. But <laughs> at the same time, uh, you know, I do get. Like everybody, I well, as I've gotten older and had children, I try to avoid watching the news because I just get more and more frustrated with the way the world is. Mm-hmm. And there's been some stuff that's happened, of course, this weekend. Uh, there's recently that just you know blows your mind, as as anything always does. But this, of course, affects movie lovers in some way. But and I don't want to get into it because it's too politically charged and too insane to even talk about. So. No, but I think with without getting into any of that, we can say certainly the tragedy that unfolded in Aurora uh, is unspeakable, and it, and it is just that it's a tragedy, and our hearts go to anyone affected, and it's something you can't help but you know be emotional about. Yeah. Uh, and of course, w- w- in saying that, also, you know, since we didn't say it, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, and not to give it on the short shrift, 
but you know Ernest Borgnine passing a heavyweight who we both loved and will be missed and Sage Stallone a, a life that was taken from us far too short so yeah, all kinds of craziness lately but, yeah, so yeah just, it has been so certainly rest in peace to everyone that um, between that and you know pulling up like uh, MSN or something at work and you know seeing you know somebody leaves a child in a hot car and it dies or oh, between all fuck. of the I know between all of the awfulness that goes on sometimes a movie like Jeff who lives at home uh, just it just makes me feel good Mm-hmm. And I needed that at that moment, and uh, because of that, I really, really enjoyed it. So Susan Sarandon's great in it, as you know, she always brings it. She always is great. Man. And you know, I still find her hot. Uh, so do I. I still want to. See, I, I still want to see her naked. I know. I almost well, feel like a shit heel for saying that, but you know. Hey. Yeah, I mean, she. I just uh, you know, woman. there's something about her I find appealing, and. No, this always she is great, man. Great actress. I'm glad, and even still, she's she still knocks out of the park. She doesn't half-ass it like some of the actors her age. Yeah, yeah. It's good that she still works a lot too. That you know, the Hollywood doesn't forget about her, or filmmakers don't forget about her. Because some some actresses, when they get to the age she is, she she gets cast in the same. You know, they get cast in the same role over and over and over again. And of course, nowadays she plays somebody's mom all the time. But yeah, still, she always kind of breaks it when she does that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the leads are good too. The film's just good. I mean, it's eighty three minutes. It's a very simple film, and uh, you know, it's this is a good movie, and I really enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm happy, and I'm definitely going to check out some more Duplass Brothers stuff now. It's so, a puffy chair, yo. Yeah, the puffy chair. That was the other one. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one that kind of got on the Rumblecore. Uh, I don't even know what Mumblecore means. Yeah, I think it's because they're just kind of mopey and. Yeah. A lot of the characters, these hipstery kind of mopey people. I think that, I presume that's what it means. I know Fake Shamp or Miles or one of these guys who's more in tune with the movement yeah. could. Uh, those those hipsters? Those fucking hipsters. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, I, it, yeah, I think Criterion even put out uh, Puffy Chair. Yeah, possibly. So. All right. So that that's literally all I watch outside of uh, the Misfits and. <laughs> not much else well, in Toy Story films and uh, you know the, every now and then the random Barney episode or the random uh, Thomas yeah man hit entertainment is a big hit in my house wicked guy <laughs> and Bob the Builder Bob the Builder's made a comeback in the house lately <laughs> yeah Williams I've tried to get him to warm up to Bob but he hasn't I like Bob's song I like Bob's song and I, I, I like the idea of Bob's town like, yeah, I like, man. I like those quaint little towns. You know, I'm always a sucker for that. You know, where of the course town it's, it feeds into that notion that romantic kind of I don't want to say Americana, but that romantic kind of small town feel. What was it? He has a song that goes ready, steady, ready, steady, go. Right, that's him. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I like that song. I'm trying. I try to sing. Get William feeling it, man. He just he fucking cuts me off. Doesn't want any part of Bob. <laughs> Moved on, yeah. All right, so that is everything we've watched. Uh, we are going to take a short break and come back and talk about what do you want to talk about? Because I mean, either both film have the has the same uh, <laughs> the same uh, through line, I think. So, uh, why don't you pick, man? Why don't you pick? I'm, I'm I got a lot to say with either one. So, all right. Well, I'm uh, not completely I'm not completely awake, so we'll do the killing first. So that way you okay. lead. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool, man. Because you've, you've been awake longer than I have. Uh, two hours already, instead of 10 minutes, instead of 35 minutes. <laughs> All right. So uh, we'll take a short break, come back, talk about Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Be right back. Stop. 
If you haven't been listening to Outside the Cinema recently, here's what you've missed. Our one-year anniversary show. Congratulations. If you are listening. Hooray us. You have come across the one-year anniversary episode of Outside the Cinema. Woo. Ryan's tearful goodbye. <laughs> I promised myself I wouldn't cry. Chris's excited welcome. And for the first official time, new co-host, Mr. Chris. How's everybody doing? And Chris's sudden embrace by the OTC Nation. I am. I'm at a loss for words, which is really bad because this is an audio format. Oh, yeah. And you missed a whole lot of movie talk, too. Outsidethecinema.com, your source for occult movie discussion. play that outside the cinema promo because i haven't heard it in ages just kind of funny to listen to it go back in a time capsule a little bit yeah totally uh totally is that's an old promo man and, yeah uh, there's an old one <laughs> yeah it totally is i want to give it up to shirley ellis of, of one of the great unheralded voice of uh, soul music i'm really i love shirley ellis so yeah it's good stuff there yeah. two six eight seven yeah right all right anyway <laughs> all right, we're back um okay so we are going to review a little film called The Killing. And not The Killing Zone either. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, we're not revisiting it yet. Wait till the blue. <laughs> uh, 1956 Stanley Kubrick <clears throat> film. Uh, and, uh, and we were saying off the air, I think off the air, or maybe on the air, uh, probably on the air, I think, that this is the first time we've covered a Stanley Kubrick film on the show, which is kind of insane when you think about it because both of us are pretty big fans of uh stanley and uh, yeah i'm looking at his filmography right now we've covered none of these and i think both of us i know for myself i'm pretty sure you feel the same just so you know you can check in on imdb now like just like miso i think i'm gonna scrap miso and just stick with imdb yeah 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 because i know a lot of people have been doing that yeah fuck that um but i consider stanley kubrick although he is one of my favorites i consider him to be if i detach myself from that the greatest filmmaker of all time, in my opinion. And I think you may feel the same. He is my favorite filmmaker, yes. What about greatest? Do you consider him the greatest? Um, well, that's a little too much for me to pontificate on this morning. But yeah. Top five? Well, yeah, yeah, I do think he's top five. I do think he's top five. Okay, so both of us. I would consider him, let's just say that his film language is the most, uh, it's the most, it's impressive. It's really colored my love of film. I'll, I'll just say that. Oh, fuck it, fuck it. He, to me, he's the greatest filmmaker of all time. Yeah! <laughs> there we go. There you go. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> we'll start doing the random, Dad, I love you. <laughs> 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 oh, shit. Anyway. Um, 
the Killing. But anyway, this is available in many different ways to watch. We watched the Criterion Blue. You can watch it on Amazon Instant Video. Nice. So you can play along if you want to at home, if you have that. Um, anyway, uh, The Killing. Let's see the plot synopsis. Crooks plan and execute a daring racetrack robbery. Very simple. Correct? Well, not so correct. It's a Stanley Kubrick film, so there's always a few little odds and ends that are interesting. Although this film is unlike quite a bit of Kubrick's uh, filmography, when you think about it. When you watch this film and then you watch his later work, I'd say, you know, especially when you're talking about um, Strange Love and On, probably. Mm-hmm. His filmography it really changed. I mean, he really became the Stanley Kubrick that we pretty much all know at that point. Uh, the Killing, Pass of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita—that was all before this. Um, those are all, you know, slightly different, I would say, than Strange Love and Beyond. Yeah, there's certainly a very distinct through line or uh, separation or divide where you can look at his early work and see it's, they they feel very much like studio films. Uh, it doesn't feel necessarily like Kubrick's film language, yet they're still really, really well-made films. I mean, who would have ever thought that Kubrick would make an 86-minute film? Yeah, I know. I know. Crazy. All right, so uh, that is the plot synopsis and uh, a little bit of history behind or what our thoughts are on Stanley Kubrick. Let's hear what you think of this film. I know you had seen it, uh, for, I think, for the first time in the last couple of years. Yep, that's right. Within the last, uh, yeah, within the last couple of years, I'd seen it for the first time, and I was quite, uh, quite a fan of it. So I bought the blue. I don't know when. Within the year, probably within within six months to a year. Um, and it's a great package too. The blue looks really great, and I feel foolish almost saying that every time I watch blue, the film's the best it's ever looked. Well, no shit, guys. It's <laughs> it's on blue, but it, it does look good because I think we've seen some blues that. Are disappointing. Like I bought one of the first blues I bought was Carrie, mm-hmm. and that blue looks like shit. It's fucking bare bones. That film deserves better treatment. I consider it to be a top five favorite horror film of all time, and for it to be treated less. So, but I guess that's sort of an irony that Carrie's been wrongly done by. But yeah, you get that's the thing about Blu-rays, right? I mean, you know, there's a lot of easy transfers out there, so you kind of got to be careful. Usually. If something comes out and it's only like 10, 14 bucks, I'm always a little weary. <clears throat> oh, me too. But when I see the name Criterion, oh, yeah. I think, okay, well, there's there's a love and care that's going to be put into this because of the label. Um, and that's, this is no exception. There's a, um, some great special features on here. I don't have the disc in front of me, but um, this was f- uh, Kubrick's third feature film. It was shot for like 250 grand. Um, and on this disc, there's also, I think, his actual first feature film, something called First Kiss or something Kiss. or a Killer's Kiss. Killer's Kiss, which is a great little special feature because you get two early Kubricks for the price of one. There's interviews with Hayden. Uh, there's a thing on Jim Thompson who wrote it, of course, which is ironic because my Killing Blu-ray is next to the Killer Inside Me Blu-ray I have. Nice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really great package, as always, from Criterion Film Lovers and... I think I would highly recommend people people grab this. It's certainly a buy, and I'm not going to sort of withhold the fact that I really love this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you'd mentioned it first. Kubrick on our show. Who'd have thunk that you know, really close to 200 episodes in, the director that we feel is the greatest of all time is finally getting his DGTMC debut. Um, now I love the cover for this Criterion Blue. It's a very simple cover. Uh, um, <clears throat> it's the guy in the clown mask, which is, yeah. I think, I believe it's, uh, it's not, I think it's, yeah, it's Sterling Gates. Oh, it was, that's right, that's right, it was. 
It's one of those great kind of hobo clown masks with like the Hulk Hogan stubble. Yeah, his Johnny. Yeah, little Johnny Clay there by. Um, Such a great uh, gangster name or you know Johnny criminal Clay. name, Johnny Clay. Not Absolutely. as good as Timothy Carey's name, which is Nicky Arcane. Nicky Arcane, yeah, he's one wild motherfucker. He is. Um, in real life, too. Oh, uh, yeah, actually, in real life, he's even more wild. Yeah, but see, none of those, none of these names uh, will be trumped by one of the henchmen in the final score, whose name is Hanky. But uh, we'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I think, our second or third noir on the show. We did The Big Heat, which we didn't get to talk about together, sadly. Um, noir is a thing that I, I've admittedly said, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, but I feel a little bit blind. I've seen maybe, uh, maybe 12 to 15 noirs in my life, proper noirs. A lot of films we watch have elements of noir, or, you know, the term neo-noir gets bandied about. I consider this to be a pretty good jump-off point for people who don't really know that much about it or haven't seen that much noir to see if they're going to um, like what it has to offer. And I can't see too many people who like our show not liking noir. But um, it's almost like a, um, an hors d'oeuvre or like a oh, amuse-bouche, as they say in the food world. Little smattering of different things to see if you like it. Nice, um, nice. And uh, yeah, I wonder. I wonder though, amongst people that are real sort of noir uh, enthusiasts, people like Eric and our board, and you know a few other people, uh, where this ranks in sort of the pantheon of noir is because it's near the top of the list of the stuff I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know where. Well, it's hard for me to say where it ranks for me. I've seen a lot of noir, but. I mean, it's up there. Mm-hmm. One thing about this film that's kind of odd, and I was going to say this in my notes, but I'll go ahead and say it now. You really got to buy the way it's told because it's it's not the uh, the the messing with the time frames, which I'm sure you'll discuss and stuff. It's mm-hmm. the uh, the narration will kind of throw you for a loop at first. It's very much out of the time, but I think it very it works. And here's the thing: the film's ahead of its time because it's out of chronological order. Mm-hmm. which, as we know, has influenced more than a few filmmakers that we love. Mm-hmm. Um, that apparently didn't go over very well with test audiences in 1956. Who would have thunk that? Yeah. Um, but I, I like the narrative, and here's why I like the narrative. It's just very matter-of-fact, almost like a, like a news like a news story or, or something to that effect. I like it because it gives us a sense of urgency and it gives us a sense of, of punctuation, not punctuation, of punctuality, um, and just the timing, because this is really pulling off this tice is all about the timing. So I think it's it's sort of dragnet meets you know um, something else to kind of give us a sense of urgency and timing that we need if this ice is going to be pulled off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just it's just really strange when it really is. It's a smack across the face when you first start watching, right? Because it's like, and in June of '56. <laughs> Johnny Clay yeah. was going to this thing, you know. It's 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 very strange and it's very unCubrick, right? Because he's like it is very non-narration. You know, everything just kind of takes place for him. Mm-hmm. So it's very odd at first, but once you buy that, you're you're totally in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing I found even when watching this at three thirty this morning is when you get a great filmmaker, how easily they can suck you in with anything and everything they do in their films. Like even early on with the horse racing stuff, you feel the power and speed of horses, which you know, we see horse racing and horse tracks in films fairly, fairly, um, fairly consistently. 
and I still kind of feel something when watching it. And even when watching it now, like I said, it's it's a very good film. Um, but I just found like I was sucked right in. I didn't want to look away for a minute. Yeah. You know, some films you feel you can get up, take a piss. Sometimes you want to get up and take a shit, read a book, do whatever. But with this, I didn't even want to get up. I wanted to just stay seated um, and watch the whole thing. And that really is, I think, the mark of a great filmmaker is to be able to tantalize from the first frame and just suck you right in. But you don't want to miss a word, a frame, nothing. Yeah, yeah. I think I said that when I checked in with this one that, uh, you know, watching it, I got sucked into it all over again. It's amazing that I've seen this film like four or five times and now. Here I am, I'm watching it again. I'm thinking, you know, I'll watch it for the show and revisit it on Blue and stuff. And, you know, I'll take notes and maybe do a few other things while I'm doing that. Maybe, you know. And But, nope, I'd sit there and just get sucked right back into the damn thing all over again. Mm-hmm. And like you said, four or five times in, you can, you'd, you'd think you can autopilot it a bit. But, no, you couldn't. It's, it's good, good stuff. Um, <clears throat> so we see a man walking around. Running an address and a date on these uh, these horse racing ticket stubs or whatever, and he's giving them to employees, and it's just kind of this interesting setup. And I want to say early on, what this reminded me of was a film I had seen after I'd first seen The Killing, and I didn't put two and two together. I think at first is The Split, which I just talked about ironically recently, the Jim Brown heist film. Oh yeah, with Warren Oates, where it takes place at the uh, the L.A. Coliseum during a Raiders playoff game. Never seen that film. I need to see that film. Fucking cool film, man. It's, it's got an amazing cast. Um, I want to say it's, uh, what's her name there? Um, big L.A. Lakers fan, older woman. She was hot in like the 60s. Oh, yeah, Diane Cannon. Diane Cannon's in it. She's a hot piece. Um, Orrin Oates is in it. Jim Brown's in it. There's a few other really big names, too. Like cool, also, cool names. as you say, also both hot pieces. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um <laughs> But it just it reminds me that you know this film, The Killing. Oh, it was Diane Carroll who was also in it. Oh, okay. Maybe it wasn't. Oh, Borgnine. Speaking of Borgnine. Oh, nice. Julie Harris, Gene Hackman, Jack Klugman, Warren Oates, Donald Sutherland. Um, yeah, so really big cast, man. So anyway, it reminds me of that a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, now, of course. This isn't the, wouldn't be the last time that um, uh, Kubrick would work with Johnny Clay. <laughs> yeah, yes. would use him to great effect. Uh, and you know, Hayden's a guy that I think we all we all dig. He's of a certain era. Um, he's never been known to be the greatest thespian of all time. But Kubrick, being the director he is, was able to wring a lot out of uh, Hayden. You know, he used him to great effect in Strange Love. Um, you know, you know what it is with Hayden. Sterling Hayden, he's not a great actor, but he is a great presence, and yes. he's got natural charisma, mm-hmm. and this kind of natural, just you know, he's he's and, he's and he can be foreboding, right? He's a big dude, he tall guy, physicality. Yeah, he's got a lot of physicality to him. Uh, there's an interview with him on the disc that's kind of infamous, and it gets, it's out there on YouTube too. The different, uh, um. Isn't he drunk and he has a beard? And I think I've seen it on YouTube, not in the disc. He's wearing the uh, Sammy goatee, and it's uh, yeah, that's right, man. But it's funny because every time he talks, like, see, you know, I'm, 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 yeah, yeah, you know, he's he's got he's just he's you know he's really he's from the New England area, and he's just you know he's really old school. I mean, this guy was a, a fisherman, uh, you know, a, a, a sailor essentially, hard knocks, tough ass, you know. Some people argue some some of the one of the toughest jobs in the world, right? 
Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, he just kind of happened into acting. It was all, you know, just by accident. He's, he, his, his theory is he started at the top and worked his way to the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Because uh... toward the end of his career, he made some real clunkers. He did. He made that fun film with Kinski and the Snakes where he plays like the boozy grandpa. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's just cashing Venom checks. Venom or Hiss or something. He's, I can't remember. He says so in, uh, in the interview. You know, it's uh, one of the few jobs you could think that you get paid really well to not be very good. Yeah. That's what he says. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Very candid. <laughs> he was in some of the best films of all time, though. I mean, fuck Yeah, no, it's crazy. I know, it's crazy. Strange it's... love. It's just wild, man. Um, not to say it wasn't without merit. Certainly it was. He was a good actor. But yeah, not not a world beater, like when we think of the all-time greats. Hayden, I don't think, comes up for too many people. But yeah, he is great in this. And as with most great noirs, we start to see really these desperate situations for a group of men, you know, gambling over their head cops, men just out of prison. Um, we get men with limited options, that, you know, uh, wives who don't love them, despite them being desperately in love with them, and and uh, I liked that Faye, who plays Johnny Clay, Sterling Hayden's uh, girlfriend, she's talking to him early on, and she says, you know, I'm a woman with limited options. I'm not very pretty and not very smart. And just, uh, it just it's kind of that desperate thing that works so well with noirs, because when you get people's hands forced, it's when the slip-ups happens, and when they're forced into these decisions that cause the slip-ups, that really make for great cinema. Mm -hmm. um, wow, I don't oh. There's a few actors in this, born in the 1890s. Jesus. Yeah, there's two or three of them I saw. I was like, Holy fuck. Um, so when we first see um, uh, poor Alicia Cook Jr.'s wife, Sherry, I think Sherry? Yeah, Sherry. Uh, we just know she's going to be trouble. Oh, yeah. Just know it. She is going to be the femme fatale. She reminded me of Ileana Douglas. Oh, my God. I was just... You are... Yes. 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 Mary Windsor. Yeah, Marie man. Marie Windsor. Totally. I was going to say that. She totally did. Like uh, She's like the Ileana Douglas of the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> that means that Quint would love to rub one out to her. <laughs> Yeah, um, she's been a lot of shit, man. I remember her a lot in TV growing up. Mary Winter or Ileana Douglas? Uh, Marie, Marie, I think it's Marie Winter. But oh, it is Marie. <laughs> yeah, but she's been in a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff, a lot of TV shows in the fifties and sixties stuff. But I remember in a lot of um, uh, movies as well. My, she just happened to be in a lot of stuff that like my grandfather would watch. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, she did a lot of TV for sure, and a lot. Yeah, yeah she's definitely a working actress. Mm -hmm. Um. God, there's such an easy joke to make about. But she was in the narrow margin. There's such an easy joke to make about her and Quint with that, but I won't. <laughs> um, so yeah, poor Alicia Cook. You know, as George, his character is one that, you know, despite being surrounded by all these tough guys, he's someone that really puts in a great performance, and you you really can't wait to see what he's going to do next. He has a certain allure as this kind of sad sack. Um, I mean, he's just looking for love so desperately, and his, there's there's a certain allure with his sad sack nature in this film. Yeah, yeah, and, and he's an odd actor anyway. He yeah. he always reminded me of like Michael J. Pollard or somebody like that. He yeah, just, you know, this one of these kind of bizarre actors. And uh, those of you who don't know who he is, uh, you see him, you'll know who he's. At. He's been in about a thousand films, I think. It seems like I don't, I never have even looked at his filmography, but it's like so much stuff he's been in. Oh yeah, and his voice is very—he has a very distinct voice as well. Yeah, been in about 
the million movies it seems like he's got a yeah 213 credits it's like he finished off his career mostly in uh magnum pi and, and elf yeah well you know who wouldn't right right simon and simon the fuck i did a lot of tv at the back end mm-hmm. yep but he's worked with everybody from charles bronson he was in uh saint ives with charles bronson and yeah. all kinds of shit <laughs> St. Ives, the, uh, the was he a famous mystery novelist? Yes, with the pipe. With the pipe. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Timothy Carey, you know, well-respected actor. Um, <laughs> he, I remember him from Paths of Glory, having seen that also within the past uh, about a year and a half. Um, he's really good in that. Now, something that I found amusing about Carey was. He could have been in a lot of other films that were really great. Like, you know, he was a guy that kind of was in demand despite being a bit quirky. And he actually improvised some of his lines in Paths of Glory. And I think to myself, I think, man, Stanley Kubrick must have loved you if he let you improvise anything. He did love Timothy Carey, it should be said. Uh, Kubrick was like one of the first real fanboys of movies that made movies because Mm -hmm. he was totally into character actors. That's why this film's so full of character actors. He loved character actors and he throughout his whole career he always would rather work with character actors until it got to the point to where he couldn't get a movie made unless he had big stars. Right. Um which really didn't happen until actually almost his last film really. Yeah. But uh, but you know, he did Paths of Glory basically because Kirk Douglas wanted him. And that was based on the strength of Kirk Douglas seeing this film. Right. But he just loved uh, character actors a lot, like uh, you know, a lot like a lot of film buff filmmakers do, like your Tarantino's, your Rodriguez's, Coen your Coen Brothers. Yeah, they love these guys, right? So, so he uh, he would let Carrie kind of run wild. But the thing about Timothy Carey is, for those of you who don't know who he is, most of I think most of our listeners might. He, you know, I, I joke around, but I really do honestly believe the guy was certifiable. I mean, I do yeah. believe he was. He couldn't have been anything else other than an actor. I mean, he even made... Kinski needed to make a film together. <laughs> well, I think even Kinski would have been intimidated by this dude. Tone it down, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, he was just, you know, he's just a he's a bizarre, bizarre man, and uh, yeah, he's a lot of fun in this movie. I love the little moments with the uh, with the dog after he shoots the gun, the street sweeper, that automatic shotgun he has, and I like the uh, the. Uh, the uh, parts of the gun, the part where he kind of like, there's almost like a, uh, a homosexual tension between him and Sterling Hayden, the way he kind of pets his face and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very bizarre. <laughs> just little touches, yeah. and you just know where Timothy Carey touches, you know? <laughs> oh, totally. And that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, because everyone who knows anything about Kubrick knows he was about total control, and he would do the most just pointless. Uh, aspect of it like the, just a scene that was just really had no bearing in the film he would do it like 300 times yeah and you know for him to to let carry freewheel a bit really says how he felt about him because no one freewheeled for kubrick so yeah but yeah carrie does add <laughs> add a certain color to the film definitely oh yeah he's very and he's very that, colorful very colorful and it adds something because his character is a bit of a loose can he is a loose cannon right so um the film you know I find that the film, I don't think it was so much a conscious decision because I think Kubrick was more fixated with making the film he wanted than than breaking uh, film language or creating film language or shattering concept- uh, notions of what certain films or genres or tropes needed to be. But the film doesn't operate in the shadows as much as other noirs. Um, there are some great scenes that are well lit with men sort of with shadows around them, but 
it, it feels feels different than a lot of noirs in that aspect for yeah, me. I think the most noir aspects of the film are obviously the Sherry, George, and Val love triangle, right? Mm-hmm. Vince Edwards looking like Elvis, trying to pull off an Elvis Presley look almost. Good old Elvis Vince. by way of uh, William... Uh, uh, I can't remember what that... Rolling Thunder, William Devane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks a little bit like <laughs> William Devane. You're right. Good good call. Good call. But, uh, yeah, he, he... You know, they, they got that kind of love triangle in there. And then there's uh, the scene between Hayden and uh, Marie as well that's very uh, film noir as well. But you're right. It doesn't lurk in the shadows. It's kind of out in the open. Yeah, a lot of brightly lit stuff. Exteriors in California and... A lot of back alleys and stuff like this. So, you know, that's cool. Um, some great lines Thompson had written. Like when they're talking about Sherry, uh, Hayden says to her, you know, you like money. <laughs> you have a big dollar sign where most have a heart. Yeah. It's uh, kind of really good stuff. Uh, and they're mostly kind of hard men in this film, which is, you know, very much of the, the genre. Um, there's a scene where... You know, we get Hayden recruiting his guys for the thing, and everyone has a specific task, which is one of those things you love about heist films, is that, you know, this guy's the safe cracker, this guy does that. And he goes to the uh, Academy of Chess and Checkers to get, um, what's his name there, George Animal Steel's dad, basically, <laughs> uh, Cola, Cola uh, Quiriani. And here's a piece, now, every, most people know that Kubrick was a, was a checkers and chess enthusiast in New York. Here's the thing I didn't know until I'd first seen the film, because uh, Cola Corani does very much, he was a professional wrestler, and he did very much look like George Animal Steel's dad. Yes. Um, he was a checkers and chess enthusiast, which is why he was cast in this film. He used to play with Kubrick yeah. in New York. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. There's a lot of scenes of, uh, or a lot of behind the scenes photographs of Kubrick playing chess or checkers. Yeah, definitely. He always, that's what he always did between setups. Yeah. Um, he said George Animal Steel's uh, a brother or father. When he says that, if you guys haven't seen the film, uh, this guy, he's he takes his shirt off. He's still wearing a sweater, brah. Yeah, mohair for real. <laughs> Fucking Andy Garcia would uh, weep in envy at that much body hair. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, the carry exchange about killing a horse is really great. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of um, uh, showing Hayden thinking stream of conscious about the whole thing while he's trying to convince him to do it. He's like, you know, you get $5,000. He goes, it's not first degree murder. It's not even murder. I don't know what it is. And yeah. it just kind of, you know, at this point, you know, I think Hayden kind of realizes that he really needs to rely on a lot of people for this thing to go down smooth, including some people that aren't the most reliable. Right. Right. Cause he gives everyone only the info they need to do what they need to do because otherwise that's when the water gets even more muddied. So, you know, um, the film's 84 minutes or 86 minutes, whatever it is. And I got to say that the th one of the things I find most admirable is that a film that short, Kubrick's able to get a lot of memorable characters, a lot of memorable scenes, a lot of memorable dialogue. He's able to flesh things out for us individually and collectively um, with great economy considering the length of the film. Mm -hmm. And still keep sort of this palpable doom and dread and tension throughout. Right. Really right. fantastic. Um you really feel for the character of Mike. He's got the sick wife, and that's his motivation for for doing this. Um, you know, everyone has their own motivation, certainly. Um, God. 
there's some great shots of uh, the horse track. Yeah. Just different things at the horse track, the, the the horns and the people, the crowd spilling out after a horse race and and some great exterior shots of the city, which looked, you know, looked, I mean, maybe I'm just saying this because I saw some hills, but looked to be kind of Bay Area, um, maybe Los Angeles, who knows. But anyway, it looked certainly California. Um, he definitely shot it in California, I know that. Santa Anita, maybe, who knows. San Mateo, um, that's where yeah. that racetrack is, San Mateo, Los Angeles, San Mateo County. I done Mateo. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. The, the scene with Carrie and the parking lot attendant is really great and really tense because it's one of those little scenes where, you know, we know Carrie's on edge. We know Carrie has to do something because he's 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 inherently on edge. You're like, oh man, this thing, this thing, this isn't going to end well. And uh, it's uh, it's an interesting scene. It's a really really good scene. Um, God, I feel bad for. The the indignity uh, that that the uh, part the African American parking lot attendant has to kind of yeah endure yeah. Um, at the hands well, of Carrie yeah Carrie you can tell you know he he sees a way in so he uses it and manipulates and then you know he gets fed up and he has to break it off and so he does something that uh, even back then was really you know as prevalent as that might have been even more so back then it really wasn't said in movies that often. It's fucking awful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the tension in the end goes, and, and Clay's kind of overseeing everything, and he's like, man, man and you're sort of seeing as he does that i got to rely on a lot of people here. And and uh, and then, you know, shit gets real very quick with George and Val and in the the motel room or whatever it is. And, yeah. And uh, and then it gives that, that great line with the, the, the narrator says, 10 minutes later. He bought the largest suitcase he could find. Yes. <laughs> I know. There's a lot of great lines like that. It's funny. <laughs> Which I think is unintentionally comedic, but, you know, it's comedic only in hindsight because it's very straight-faced. Yeah. Almost absurd. Um, so, and then, you know, that great scene with, with someone unsteadily grabbing a birdcage and exacting this woozy revenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to smile at that, thankfully. Um I don't want to say too much about the back end of the film. It involves a woman with a dog. It involves fate and doom and an inevitability that was a hallmark of the genre. And I don't know that I've seen done better than this. And a character realizing um, <laughs> what their lot is. And uh, <laughs> yeah. just... Just yeah. their physicality in that moment of realization is is just so so excellent. So that's all my notes. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, you know, I'm just realizing some people are saying that uh, Stanley Kubrick's actually in Eyes Wide Shut. He actually played a bearded cafe patron. I don't remember him in that. I'm gonna have to go back and look. I hope he doesn't play one of the masked nude men <laughs> in the orgy scenes. I think we would have been able to tell that probably. Yeah. Uh, it also should be said that supposedly Roddy Dangerfield is an extra in this film. Yeah, somewhere. I saw that. I had to try to keep an eye on but I didn't see him. I never have seen him. So it's yeah. a, a big time supposedly, but I don't know. Um, yeah, so a lot of what you said is is true, man. The blue looks great of this film. I mean, it really does. It's a, it's a, it's a great kind of sell for the format for these older films. Uh, of course, you know, it is Criterion, so it does make a difference, but... It, it it looks really great, and you know, like I said, if you buy the narrative of this film, I think you can buy the film quite easily. Uh, 
it's almost a like it's almost like an account of a story. Like it's almost like a tale. Like yeah, you know, yeah. You an know, account, I think, is a good way to put it. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's almost like a report, play by play report. Yeah. So it's kind of fun that way, and the way it kind of tells the story and stuff. And I think because the look, I, I love heist films. What I love about heist yeah. film is preparation for heist film. You know, that's what I think the heist film does better than any other genre. Really, is it kind of gives you all the if if you really get into the details, you can get lost in them. And I remember an interview with Soderbergh when he was talking about Ocean's uh, Eleven. He was talking about the great thing about heist films was detail. Mm-hmm. When you start talking about detail and stuff, people start getting excited, you know. And of course, the other thing about heist films is typically in Hollywood heist films they work out to a T, whereas in reality they do not. Um, you know, in heist films, you know, the lead guy's like, "Yeah, exactly four fifteen, and exactly this, and exactly that," and, you know. And in reality, life doesn't always work out that way. Traffic, you know, whatever. But that's the great thing and the great mark of certain noirs and certain heist films is that how the most seemingly harmless thing, whether it's an oversized bag and a strict policy at an airport or traffic or something else, how the smallest detail, despite planning out the ass, yeah. will will throw a monkey wrench into everything. Yeah. The amount of dialogue sometimes delivered in a scene in this film is amazing. Mm-hmm. For Hayden, who's somebody who didn't really like acting, there's some scenes in this film where he has to deliver a shit ton of dialogue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, geez, how do you memorize all that shit, you know? Oh, boy. It's pretty amazing. Um, I, I just find Kubrick an interesting director because, you know, it's it's like his early stuff was very character-based, uh, kind of strong narratives and stuff, passive glory, this <laughs> things. And then later on, he became this guy that kind of just came, became obsessed with the power of uh, the cinema's image. And themes, certain broad themes and statements versus individual character pieces, yeah. Yeah. Because there's, you know, once he gets to Strange Love and beyond, there's hardly a Kubrick film that goes by that you can't think of a stunning image from. True, very true. And it's very interesting that he became so obsessed with image and stuff. That that photographer mindset really kind of came out even more so after Strange Love and on. So, you know, because you can think about uh, well, you know, I could rattle off a thousand scenes here, probably between those strange love and eyes wide shut, and you'd be like, "Oh yeah, man, that was really." You know, we could talk about it all day long, but it is very interesting how he goes from this narrative based filmmaker, like you were kind of almost like a studio filmmaker in some ways, like a Hollywood filmmaker, yeah. into this sort of image filmmaker, which he kind of did a little bit in Lolita. If you see Lolita, have you ever seen Lolita? Yeah, yeah. There's there's some imagery in that that you start to see that he's starting to to change. His, uh, his ways a little bit. So by the time he gets to Strange Love, it starts to become the Stanley Kubrick we know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, one of my notes here is the tough thing about taking notes for this film is that after all these years, I still get caught up in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, it, man. I, there sure. was moments where I wasn't writing anything down for like 20 minutes. I'm like, Jesus, I got to write something down here. <laughs> you, ever, you, ever, you ever have those moments when you're watching a film oh, yeah. and we take you get sucked right in yeah it's like the first 20 minutes of weird it's the first 20 minutes of final score I, I didn't write anything down and even though there was a ton of stuff to write down I was just sucked in yeah <laughs> a different type of suck but uh, uh, Timothy Carey kind of an interesting tidbit about Timothy Carey you know he was originally going to play the character of Joe in Reservoir Dogs oh wow the uh, Lawrence Tierney part which I think again just goes to further illustrate the um, influence this film had on Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, Tarantino, I know on the disc, on the Reservoir Dogs disc, says he met him. And he said at the time that Carrie was obsessed with uh, farting. 
that uh, that society makes people hold in their farts and that it kills you and that you should always if you have to fart you should just fart let it loose and tarantino goes he's just one of the weirdest fucking actors ever <laughs> and, can i just say something on air here that i just realized what did you just farted <laughs> no i would i'm a gentleman i turn the mic down yo yeah that's good it's good like i did after that sausage and eggs <laughs> um uh this film would clearly influence tarantino but there's a scene in final score that i think tarantino was very influenced by and <laughs> borrowed for kill bill it's, it's so the through line is there is a tarantino influence <laughs> it's quite possible uh it's, oh it's, my god <laughs> is criterion putting out the exorcist uh, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't think so. Is this one of those bogus covers? It might be. I don't know. Fuck, this looks beautiful, man. I don't know. You never can tell. You never can tell with the, those bogus covers. Some people make some pretty awesome fan covers for Criterion stuff. I'm going to send you this to look at. Do you have your phone with you? Uh, yes, I do. Okay, yes, so as you're talking, I'll send this to you. And- um. Anyway, so... But yeah, he was supposed to play the tyranny role, which is weird because Carrie's crazy. But if 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 any, if any of you guys know uh, Lawrence Tyranny, he's also was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. He also was a pretty insane. I know there's a lot of stories from like uh, well Christopher Penn back in the day and Michael Madsen and stuff and everything that they would talk about tyranny and they would say you know he'd call him up in the middle of the night and sometimes he'd show up at their place and sometimes he'd walk around their place naked. <laughs> all kinds of crazy he was just really old school crazy you know madman some of these actors from the past man it's like they they either had to act or they were going to go to jail yeah you know so <laughs> that mask you know still to this day bothers me uh it's it's the way the mouth moves in this one yeah when hayden's talking you know it just it, it, it just drives me nuts as, as you know i i'm not a big fan of mask as you know <laughs> of course yes. kubrick would go on to use mask uh very well later on in his career I think um, these are all bogus, as an aside. Yep. Because they have ones for Thief and yeah, Manhunters. I think they have, they've announced their, I know Rosemary's Baby's coming out. That's, yeah. That's a big one. Um, if Thief comes out Criterion Blue, if this was real, oh. I'm telling you right now, we're doing it the week it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry to derail, if, but. No, no, I agree with you. I love Thief, as you know, so. Um, but yeah, the irony that is, uh, you know, based in this genre so much, um, with endings and the way things work out um, is really just so bittersweet. And that's what's so great about the genre, right? Is this is the bittersweetness of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you got, you got to think that Kubrick being the person he is and his kind of look on the way the human condition is. He loved that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, I think he gets great performances out of everybody in this film. Now, granted, some of it is, you know, 1950s style acting. No yeah, doubt, no doubt sure. about that. I mean, Hayden's like say he's delivering dialogue left and right. It's very fifties movie mm-hmm. dialogue, right? You know, it's almost like you know Little Caesar type dialogue. But the film works so well as a heist and such a simple heist picture that uh, it's amazing how well and it holds up all these years later. How tense the film still is, um, even though there are some silly parts to it. I mean it. It's pretty obvious, you know. About twenty people see Sterling Hayden without a mask walk into the uh, the door. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not not a genius plot, you know. And then he comes out, he punches a cop, and about twenty people see him punch a cop. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in, in modern times, it'd be like, dude, you fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> yeah. 
So <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty funny, but I do love all that stuff. I love also love the chaos. I think a scene that's really really good is the chaos of uh, checking the bag. Yes, that uh, that I love that because the frustration, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's so good. It's such a simple moment, but it's so good. Well, Hayden's just like he's so stressed. No, no, no. Let's see here. Yeah, you know all this. this. <laughs> Just those simple moments and stuff. But yeah, no, this film still looks great. It's totally worth the buy. Yeah, because you do get two films. Even though, I'll be honest with you, I've never seen Killer's Kiss. Uh, I plan on watching it sometime soon. There's only two Cooper films I've never seen. That's Killer's Kiss and Fear and Desire, which is the one he he would swear that he wanted nobody to see because it was like his first film, first full narrative film. Uh, I've never seen either one of those. There's a couple more in there I know I haven't seen. I'll have to look. I think you've you've probably seen most of them. Maybe. Uh, I'm looking now. Barry Lyndon I've seen in two parts. I've never seen it in one sitting. It's it's kind of a tough one to sit through in one sitting, though. Spartacus? Uh, um, No. Oh, I've never seen Spartacus. That's the big one. That's right. I knew that was the big one. Yeah, I I knew there was one in there that you hadn't seen. but Yeah. Yeah, so you got, you know, you you only got 16 films, and of those 16, three of them are shorts or documentary shorts, so... I mean, the guy only made 13 films. Seafarers. Is that a short? Uh, yeah, it's a short. 30 so. minutes. First film made in color. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway. But, yeah, the great Stanley Kubrick, uh, you know, he, he's divisive. It should be said among film buffs. He's a bit divisive. If you love Kubrick, you really love Kubrick. If you don't, you find all kinds of things wrong with his films. And, and there's nothing Cold wrong. Old robotic. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I can totally understand that. He's unique. And the way he tells uh, stories and the way he does things. Uh, some think 2001 is the most pretentious film of all time. Some think it's one of the greatest films of all time. So it's he is definitely that type of filmmaker. Although I do think all people could agree that this one is pretty simple and effective storytelling. I think even most non-Kubrick fans would agree that this is one of his best films. Uh, yeah. It doesn't fall into the, the critique that they have of Kubrick that's why do you know yeah. what I mean yeah exactly like this doesn't feel Kubrickian yeah it doesn't it doesn't except for a few moments and a few shots maybe yeah. but no not very Kubrick it should be also said that he fought with Lucian Ballard the cinematographer on this yeah. film all the time lighting and composition <laughs> and so forth because he thought he knew more because you know he was a photographer and stuff so mm-hmm. and he had shot his first film himself so <laughs> he was uh, he was uh, not very nice to Lucian yeah. <laughs> Lucian wasn't standing for that shit, brah. No, man. <laughs> wasn't digging on that. No way. But uh, yeah, that's all my notes on the killing. So you're uh, make or break MVTs. Make or break the ending. I love the ending. So I sweet. Can't really so so bittersweet. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Uh, MVT is uh, good old Kubrick. Um, you know, like I said, I think he's the greatest filmmaker to ever live. So uh, I got to go with him. I mean, you go with a few things, but I got to go with him. Score for the film, 8.5. Now, nice. this film is deceptively simple in that when I first gave it that score, I had to give pause and think, is it an 8.5 <laughs> or is it an 8.25 or is it an 8 or what is it? <laughs> And then I think, no, it's an 8.5. It's just the ease and simplicity with which it gets that score that kind of trips you up. Yeah. For me anyway. But yeah. it, when I look at it, it's very, very, very solid stuff. So there you have it. Yeah. Um, 
All right. Uh, I'll go with... I'm trying to think here where I want to go. Uh, yeah. Um, film was shot in 24 days, it should be said. Uh, pretty <clears throat> yes. amazing for a Kubrick film, considering I think uh, As Wide Shut took about three years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, um, uh, make or break, there's just so many. But yeah, the climax of the film is so sweet and bittersweet at the same time. And there's so many scenes, though, that I could go with. I, I do like the parking attendant scene with uh, Carrie. Uh, that whole little uh, brief like film within a film moments of those. Um, I like uh, the Sherry, Alicia Cook stuff is really good. Uh, even the bird, even though it's ridiculous, is good. Uh, the bird stuff is kind of funny in a weird way. Yeah. It's like Kubrick doing comedy almost. It's very strange. It is. You're right. There's a few lines that sometimes you can almost miss. <laughs> yeah. It's very strange. Cracks, yeah. I do know that uh, Thompson and Kubrick, because Kubrick ended up taking story credit on this, uh, and Thompson was pretty pissed off because he thought he did most of the work, even though he did dialogue mostly, but he felt like he did more work than that. And Kubrick, in typical Kubrick fashion, didn't say anything to Thompson. Then when Thompson goes and sees the movie, he sees that Kubrick gets the sole story credit, and he just gets yeah. he gets dialogue by Thompson. He was fucking pissed. Yeah, uh, rightfully so. But I don't know to what extent who did what, but if that's the case... Shit heel move. Yeah, sure. it is a shit heel move. Kubrick was known to do some stuff like that every now and then. But the weird thing about Kubrick is he was so charismatic to the people who knew him that Thompson, even though he fucking was so pissed that that happened, Thompson would go on to work with him again. Yeah. And, and not even care because when people got around him, they would always say that, you know, he's he's so interesting and so charismatic and stuff, even though it's weird because, you know, you, you, you hardly see any footage of him because he was a bit reclusive, right? Or not really reclusive so much, but he just didn't have any interest and all the other stuff that goes with being a Hollywood director that, uh, you know, people would, even though they knew that they were getting ready to get into a tough working relationship, they would keep going back. Yeah. <laughs> they would keep yeah. going back. So, uh, very interesting. Um, my MVT, I'm gonna give this one to Hayden in this, this instance, because I, nice. I can't think of very many films of his that I would give him an MVT. That's why I'm going with him on this one. Uh, because I like him as an actor and a presence. I don't love him as an actor. Uh, but he, you know, he's definitely a manly man, old school. You know, yeah. cigarettes, coffee, booze, yeah. broads. You know, yeah. the man, okay. man, man's man of the day and the time. You know, so spice, whiskey, and cigarette smoke. Yeah, smell <laughs> yeah. My score is a little bit higher than yours, man. Mine's a nine out of ten. Ooh, nice. I love this film. I've always loved this film. Uh, I'm very happy to own it on Criterion. Uh, I was so excited when they put it out. I almost bought it instantly, but I waited for a while. Just bought it recently with the sale going on. Uh, it's definitely a buy. I got to buy say, this one. Word in the hand is worth two in the bush. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. Sounds perverted. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like, you know, you pick up the DVD, best insert your finger in the hole. And then yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> ca- caressing the rim. <laughs> with your thumb. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. So that is our thoughts on The Killing, 1956. Danny Kubrick, we are going to take a break, come back and talk about a film that's 30 years older or 30 years newer (laughs) or whatever. 30 years later, Arizal brings us his version of The Killing (laughs) with final score. And Christopher Mitchum will be back right after this. Okay, and welcome back to another episode of Guess That Riff. With me on the show tonight, my first contestant is Mr. Fred Nurk. 
Fred, are you ready to guess that riff? I sure am. Okay, here's riff number one. Ah, that's It's a Long Way to the Top by ACDC. Fantastic, Fred. Okay, here's riff number two. Hmm, that one is Eagle Rock by Daddy Cool. Fantastic, you're doing great, Fred. Now, this one's a tricky one. Guess riff number three. Hmm, that one is I Walk the Line by Johnny Cash. Fantastic, Fred. How did you know all those riffs? Well, I listened to Love That Album podcast. That's fantastic. Really? Uh, no, that's what you told me to say, Dad. Max, shh, I told you never to call me Dad during the promo. Go to lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or type in Love That Album or one word into iTunes. Listen to Love That Album. It might turn you into a rock geek. Or you might just con your son into making pitiful promos for your podcast. What's in it for me? Just be mad because I came home. Tell me just how bad my clothes stink. Ask me how much I've had to drink. What's in it for? All right, we are back. Nice moody piece there. I like that yeah, one. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Just did a shot of whiskey. Snorted another line, and I'm good to go. I love uh, Maurice's new promo there. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> Pretty funny. He's like, that's what you told me to say, Dad. <laughs> Uh, good stuff. Anyway, yeah, check out Love That Album. Great podcast, especially if you're into the music. All right. Um, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Uh, okay, so uh, final score, 1986. Large William, your pick. Synopsis, please. Um, <laughs> uh, wow. I tripped over the first hurdle. Everybody's looking at Mexican 80s VHS pictures. Um <laughs> Christopher Mitchum plays a man, ex-Special Forces, who's... I'm making this up as I go along, much like Gareth Allen did. Um, <laughs> is an ex-Special Forces... Highly decorated ex-Special Forces, forces uh, man who decided to settle his family down in the peaceful confines of Indonesia, only to find that when an evil man named Hawk wants to do something that is enti- entirely clear to me... <laughs> Brown's family will pay, and in turn, Hawk and his organization will pay even more dearly. Yeah. Join us for Arizal's final score. Yeah, it's not exactly clear to me what the hell's wrong with that dude either. <laughs> oh boy. Oh man. So we've done two Arizal's, so he's doubled up on on good old Stanley. Yes. Which isn't a bad thing in a way. I mean, we say we're about the class and the trash. We've done both. We love both equally. Um, I'd seen this film some time ago. I couldn't wait to see for you to see it and for us to talk about it. So, yes. What yeah. did you think? Now, there's a little, like I say, a little backstory to this film. I think I watched the first 15 or 20 minutes at your house when we were getting ready to go downtown to watch a film. 
yeah. uh, you were getting ready and, uh, you know, I was doing the whole, you know, it's the whole boyfriend girlfriend thing, right? You know, I was waiting yeah. for you to get, you know, to get glammed up. <laughs> <laughs> for any of you guys that are married or have a steady, you know what we're talking about here. Yeah, <laughs> one waiting for the other to get ready. <laughs> no, but uh, in 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 uh, true real real for uh, reality or whatever you want to call it, um, I did watch like 15 minutes. Thought, man, I need to go back and revisit that because that was insane. <laughs> um, and I was right. This is insane. <laughs> this is movie making with um, no thought to the safety of human beings, cars, animals, uh, the environment. <laughs> there's buildings. There, <laughs> there's nothing safe in an Arizona film. <laughs> um, and this is another great example. Now it does start Chris Mitchum, and I really do like. I should be said right off the top. I really like Mitchum in this film a lot. A lot of times oh, yeah. he can be very. He can be kind of bland sometimes because you know he does his. He's another one of these actors who has his own special form of karate. And he does. Uh, he does Mitchum Foon. This that was one of my notes. Yeah, he's got that. Did you just snort a line, bro? I know. I got a cold, man. My kids have a cold, which means I have a cold. Exactly. Snorting lines. <laughs> I'm yeah. yeah, texting lines across the border. Um. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um. Uh, I really do like him in this film because this really suits what I think Mitchum does well. Like he does have a, he's got a very stoic and stone face. He's almost like a, uh, like a lesser Jan Michael Vincent. That's insane to say that, <laughs> but that's what he reminds me of. You know, when he when he does his films and stuff, because he's you know, he looks like his dad, but he also looks like a California pretty boy in some ways too. And it's just very strange. But he really works in here as Dick Brown, which is a. Oh, his name's Dan. That's right, Dick Brown. Well, his name's Richard Brown, but you could call him Dick Brown. But you Certainly know, could. He's probably into the, into that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, with that hot wife of his. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but uh, it also has another actor in it that uh, those of us who watch grade Z cinema uh, would probably be familiar with, Mike Abbott. Good old Mike. You know, it's a Mike Abbott film when he shows up in a speedo in scene one. <laughs> Good old Mike Abbott, um, who's been in such classics as a uh, bionic ninja hitman the cobra hands hitman of the cobra i've never seen that one that sounds incredible <laughs> yeah, it does american you... command of four angels blood mission oh wow <laughs> clearly he's worked with godfrey ho a few times you know it death code ninja hands of death he's even in a better tomorrow too which is insane when i think i about don't remember it. that <laughs> he's in ninja empire which of course you know one of my favorite credits of his is this film called Zhu Kuo Zi Duo Zing. I don't know what it is, but his credit in the film is fake cop turned stripper. <laughs> no. And then he's in another film, another Vietnamese film, where he plays a character known as Dancer Stripping His Clothes. <laughs> well, he loves to be naked because he fan he thought he had very tough tits. Uh, yeah, he, well, he's pretty bulky dude. He's, yeah, he is a bulky dude. He's a manly dude, you know. But he's got he's got a weird he's got a baby face, right? He does. We just hide it with that mustache. <laughs> but he did work with Godfrey Ho, who probably once, but uh, he got about six credits out of it. So, yeah. So six minutes in, and we have uh, family slaughter and rape, and yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, <laughs> pretty much from that point, what you're in for uh, with an Arizona film. And this is an extended rape scene. It should be said. It's extended. It's gang rape. There's a hail of bullets. <laughs> uh, a child gets his eye shot out, and then gets killed. And then gets killed shot after the, watching his shot mother in the get back, raped. It should be said. They should, not only do they kill a child, they kill a child running away. Yeah. 
<laughs> After they gang rape his mother. Yeah, they're starting to rape his mom. And it's it's one of these nasty rapes, too. It's like a sweaty. Uh, it's gross and sweaty. The guy had like a loaf hat on. He had like the newsboy cap. And... Yeah, it's a total silver and gold rape. I don't know yeah. I think about it. Um, yeah, it's like, being in, it's like being in the hills of West Virginia. <laughs> uh, well, what's awful about it is that one of the guys decides after all that his, his, his uh, fellow rapists have raped her. That he's gonna that he's gonna lick lick her chest. Yeah, that's so gross. Which is, which is just disgusting. Who knows if there's what or sweat or what on that chest? Oh, or somebody or, the, or one of your buddies' saliva. That's what I'm. Or spit. <laughs> oh. Your friend's spit, come and or sweat is on her chest, and you're licking it. <laughs> yeah. It's the most repulsive homoerotic moment in the history of action cinema. <laughs> it's so gross, but it is one of those really sleazy rapes, you know. So. And Mitchum, at one point, they say that he plays a, you know, they, they, they say in the film what he plays, but he's a nom hero, right? Vietnam War veteran. Not a hero so much, but a veteran. And they say that, I think somebody in the film says he's a war hero and an outstanding citizen. Yeah. And uh, he has a serious, like I say, a stone face in this one. I mean, he really keeps a stone face. I love the moment. There's a moment later on in the film where he's wearing like a Nelly Band-Aid on his face. <laughs> and he's got the twitch going. because He so does. Angry. The twitch. See, that's his thing. He doesn't yell. He doesn't cry. You know he's upset when he his eye twitches. <laughs> yes, he does the, tw- the twitch. It's amazing how long some of the storylines and synopsis people put on for this film. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but uh, okay, so here's here's my approach to this film. This was a tough one to. This movie is action packed. Yeah. So it was tough taking notes because there's really not a lot of downtime in this one. No. Uh, it feels like, in some weird instances, tell me if you got this vibe, it feels like some of the film sets were actually leftover sets from the stabilizer in some instances. Very probable. Yeah, because there's like one scene where he ends up in like some kind of compound. It almost feels like the same compound that Peter O'Brien was in like a couple years before. I wish, though, that that paper oil drummer, that, <laughs> that one that bounces off Peter O'Brien's head, would have been bounced off <laughs> Mitchum's head to yeah. see the effect. These stunts in this film, uh, and I said to Will off the air that there's no way that somebody didn't die making this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's there's there's some stuff in here, and there's one moment that I, I had to rewind and watch over and over again because I was sure that somebody got crushed by a car. Uh, there's yeah. there's the moment you were talking about. There's a moment where some people get hit by a car full speed, and there's two no- guys <laughs> get smashed at full speed, and they just fucking... <laughs> It looks like, I mean, if you ever see somebody get hit by a car in reality, this is what it looks like. And it looks like these guys were probably never the same. <laughs> that was that was the end of their, that was the beginning and the end of their career in Indonesian cinema. Um, but there's also a scene where somebody's hanging out of a car, that white car, that orange jacket, and he's mm-hmm. shooting at the, at uh, Chris Mitchum in the black car. Mm-hmm. And they take, and they, and they slide on the tomatoes. Oh yeah, and the car—that's another thing. International fruit. This is the tomatoes, the one in this country. The car flips over, and he never goes back into the car, and it flips over and lands on his side. Yeah. Now they do show later on that guy in the orange jacket getting out, but I'm not convinced. <laughs> it's the same, the same guy. <laughs> it's the same dude. I think that he's like, oh fuck, we just killed, we just killed JoJo. Somebody, somebody, a, give me an actor. <laughs> he's in a ditch north of Jakarta. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a serious one man army of destruction type film. I mean, this is oh, yeah. this is it. Um, this is almost to parody levels. 
yeah. in the way that this is a one-man army destruction film. I mean, you know, you can make fun of Rambo, and this film curbs a lot, I think, from Rambo 2, or Rambo First Blood Part 2, I think, in some ways, because it, it feels like that film some ways. You know, ex-Vietnam guy comes back, he's going to take... I mean... <laughs> There's a scene where there's a scene where Mitchum's it's character, actually Death Wish meets Rambo. <laughs> yeah, there's a, yeah really. There's a scene where Mitchum gets on a payphone to call somebody. I can't. I think it's the guy that uh, kind of is trying to take up for him, and he and he says the exact line of he thinks he's getting close. And I'm sitting there thinking, you think you're getting close, dude? You've already killed fifty people. Yeah, I know. And what's amazing about that scene is, unbeknownst to him, 14 cars encircle the phone booth before he realizes what's going on. Yeah, you would think he'd figure that out pretty quick. He must be an angel because he's somehow able to sh- to, <laughs> to shoot his way out of being surrounded by 14 cars full of men with automatic guns. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. He, he kills more people in this film by himself than most war films you'll see where it's yeah. the united states versus a country <laughs> yeah it's yeah. amazing i mean there's so much death and destruction and explosions and insane uh stunts in this film it's it's kind of mind-boggling i will say that i had some issues with the narrative of this film even though it's a very simple narrative a revenge action movie but you know <sighs> There were moments when I was getting lost. I didn't quite understand what those other characters were about. I thought maybe they maybe they were just like I don't think Harris Allen understood what those characters were about. And there's no real motive for Mike Abbott's character to be a bad guy other than just to be a bad guy and to go after <laughs> Richard Brown just because he doesn't like the guy. I yeah, I didn't I didn't quite understand the tie in with Hawk, who is Mike Abbott's character, having Indonesian sort of uh, the whole ill of Indonesia in his palm and how that tied in with our decorated war hero yeah. and, and the need to rape, gang rape. <laughs> and kill his and son. And kill his son. Just, gang rape his wife and kill his son. Yeah, it should be said, yeah. It should be said, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it, none of that makes, I mean, and of course, I guess it doesn't need to make sense for this kind no. of movie, but. No, it doesn't. And I know it's nitpicking, but I mean, at the same time, you know, there this is a narrative film, so. It, it has to be addressed that, you know, there's not the motivation outside of Mitchum's character really isn't there. There's not really anything else there except for there's four guys, four or five guys that rape and kill his wife and kill his son and destroy his. And, and it should be said on his son's eighth birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and kill. And, and there's also it's, it's a sign of the times, right? His son's dressed up like a soldier who's pointing a gun at his dad. And not only that, he goes to a store and he buys more guns for his son. Yeah. <laughs> more fake guns, should be said. Yeah. It's a sign of the times, right? So, but uh, yeah, you know, destroys his nice little Indonesian home, which looks like a uh, like a veteran hall center or something. Very, <laughs> very strange looking party they got going yeah. on there. They even shoot the fucking cake, brah. They do, man. <laughs> you know you got some bad guys when they even shoot the fucking cake. <laughs> it's just uncalled yeah. for, man. Think there wasn't any watermelons around. <laughs> yeah. But that's the other thing, though. There's a, <clears throat> a shit ton, a shit ton of produce and food ran over and ran into <laughs> by cars <laughs> in this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, fuck me. There's so much, man. There is. <laughs> I mean, there's like one car chase in the middle where they're in a village. If there's a fruit stand in that village, it wasn't left standing. There was a fruit stands. There was um, looked like a peanut cart or something. <laughs> a peanut cart. <laughs> you know that little trolley thing that woman's running? Wonder if next to it there's a gum gum cart. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Anything that anybody's trying to sell, <laughs> these fucking guys are going to run over it. They're all against the uh, <laughs> entrepreneurial spirit in Jakarta, man. <laughs> Jesus, it's, it's the most epic fruit and veggie stand destruction I've ever seen in a film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a, uh, you know, uh, fucking uh, Mitchum, you know, he breaks out a rocket launcher at one point. <laughs> Uh, a few times he mounts his dirt bike with a Gatling gun, a rocket launcher, um, a few other things. He wears Darth Helmet's helmet. Yeah, I love the first the scene with him and the girl. At some point, a girl helps him out. This is again. This is that Rambo, a female ninja, yeah. double agent. It should be said. Uh, and I love that scene where they're just talking, and you see the dirt bike, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, that's going to be used, and it's going to be yeah. used well. Yeah, and sure enough, I was right because as crazy as everything up to the last ten minutes of this film is, the last ten minutes takes it that one step further. It turns it up to eleven, <laughs> and I'll tell you something else, bro. Dick Brown makes Mister Hawk smell the glove. He does. <laughs> <laughs> Their fight scene is is both <laughs> incompetent and hilarious. It's um, it's so great, man. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, but in a way, in a way, it has an energy and an improvised, desperate feel to it. Like Mitchum and Hawk, Mitchum and Hawk, Mitchum and Abbott are uh, <laughs> are grabbing everything they can to smash over each other's head, choke each other. At one point, Mitchum uses a telephone as nunchucks to wrap up Hawk's hands in slow mo. It should be in slow mo. Um, <laughs> It's just incredible. Yeah, I love that scene where he's reaching and you just see the phone, the headset come across and it's just wrapped around the slow-mo. It's like, ooh, what yeah. a move by Mitchum. <laughs> that was his down-down left-right BA move. Yeah, select so start. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the finale of this film is fucking bonkers, man. It, it, involves, it involves a motorcycle and a, and, a, and a helicopter well before Stone Cold did. Oh, yeah. And uh, in one of the most improbable ways to eliminate a bad guy in cinema history it was you got one shot <laughs> and if it doesn't work you're fucked <laughs> it defies the laws of physics logic reality time and space it defies it defies the laws of cinema <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of Arizona cinema does yeah. it makes it all the more incredible yeah because it, it, it literally is talk about having a cut hair room of making a mistake <laughs> fuck me <laughs> i mean it is insane and, and he's the, revving the dirt bike and he's revving the dirt bike and he's biding time i was like oh my god i couldn't believe it. it's like one of those moments where you like have to rewind it over and over and over again you're like what the fuck was that <laughs> it's crazy oh man there's also that great moment um where um <laughs> The, the guys are chasing him, and they get hit by a train, and yeah. like all of them yell at the same time, "You son of a son bitch!" Of a bitch. <laughs> Three or four of them at the same time in unison. It's it's amazing. It's amazing <laughs> <laughs> that they <laughs> that they do that. There's so many great moments of cars exploding, and I love that other scene too, where the guys run off the road. after they rape the wife. They run off this road, and they're like it's going down the hill. It's almost like counting more. Like we, you know, you want to kill us, you know. Well, <laughs> That they had the worst brakes on a car in the history of cinema. 
there's there's a red hot poker at one point shoved up a guy's ass. A red hot poker is literally shoved up a henchman's ass. But to go back to the scene with the cars for a minute, there's that scene when they go take the car off the road, and uh, you know, because there's a lot of like kind of white noise banter between. Because the film is about 40% car chase. So there's a lot of canned kind of ball-busting dialogue between the uh, the henchmen. <laughs> and there's one moment when they do, they go off the road and the brakes are clearly aren't working the car. And one of them says, because the word is, the insult of the day is son of a bitch. One of them says, you son of a bitch, we're paid to kill, not get killed. Yeah. That's what he says. <laughs> there's so many great moments with the henchmen, you know. There's like... It's like every bad henchman that ever appeared in cinema showed up to make this movie. I mean, they're so oh, incompetent, yeah. man. So many mustaches, too. So many mustaches. A lot of them look like uh, they were trying to, they fancied themselves as kind of the Duke boys with their plaid shirts. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> my, my last note, you would think my last note would be the finale, but it's not. My last note is whatever Mitchum and Arizal were thinking when they created this little mini disguise for Mitchum to get out of a <gasps> situation amazing <laughs> they need to have their they need to be fined for that because it's one of the worst disguises i've ever seen in cinema history press on sideburns and mustache it's one of the worst things i've <laughs> ever seen ever i mean i have seen some bad shit in my day <laughs> but this this cut this disguise is the worst easily that i've ever seen i think he probably could have stuck the literally the mr potato glasses on his eyes put the Mr. Potato Head mustache in his mouth and been better disguised. <laughs> I'm crying. I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> and that's all my notes on uh, this, this classic of Indonesian cinema. <laughs> this subtle piece of cinema. Yes. yes. Um, so, yeah, it's our first Mitchum. Um, and uh, it stars one of, in, in, in a supporting role, Dickie Zalkarainen. Yeah. yeah, see that dicky, so, good old tricky dicky. Um, you know you're in for something when your opening music in a film is bullets firing. Yeah, <laughs> like there's just like just Uzis and AK-47s just being fired, and it's almost making a beat over like this Casio music that they have. Uh, Deddy Armand, of course, the great Deddy Armand, uh, the David Mamet of of Indonesia, scripted this uh, scripted this one. So good stuff uh, the, the, similar to Arizal he decided that to be effective he had to employ a one named stunt coordinator and of course Gatot did the stunts yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was, Gatot I was, you know Deddy Armand and Chris Mitchum worked together to write Angel of Fury for uh, Cynthia Rothrock oh yeah Deddy Armand's uh, quite good yeah. as, as far as you know <laughs> well as far as made. this type of cinema goes yes. yeah precisely White jeans for Mitchum early on yes. before, he, before he becomes a messenger of death. <laughs> um, yeah, he goes all black once he gets pissed off. and He's, he's in mourning, you know. Back in black. And uh, yeah, Dick Brown, he, uh, <laughs> you know, he's not, he, he might be ex-Special Forces, but he's not above picking up his wife's party dress on his way back from Jakarta. Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's totally, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's taking the easy road, man. He's going to take it. He's going to chill in Indonesia. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's great because early on when the death first happens and we get the, the Mitchum eye twitch, the Mitchum eye twitch him. There we go. I twitch him. Uh, yeah, there you go. That's good. The, uh, the Chuck Norris-esque, was it the Octagon? Chuck Norris-esque voiceover when he says, I'll find whoever did this. So help me God. They'll pay. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and voiceover. It's, it's so it's so bad. It's awesome. Yeah, it's it's it's, argu- it's arguable if this is Christopher Mitchum who made regular films. Uh, when I say regular films, he showed up in some John Wayne movies, and he was in Tombstone and and some other things. <clears throat> the question becomes, and I'll ask this question again toward the end. You know, is this you know Chris Mitchum's best trash cinema film? And Lethal Hunter is better. Yeah, well, Lethal Hunter is pretty good. <laughs> and in the first 45 seconds of Lethal Hunter, you'll see why. <laughs> this is very good, but this this is amongst Mitchum's finest hours, though. Yeah, this is, and I mean, this is up there. This is easily top five Mitchum. I got to give it up to Mitchum, though, as much as, you know, he's a bit of a Sterling, and Sterling Hayden and him, similar in some respects. Um, Mitchum's probably not as good an actor as Sterling Hayden, though. Uh <laughs> no, that was kind of a reach, but you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, I like Mitchell. I guess he's got a good. He's a good sport about all this, and you know, he was fun. He was good for the for what he needed to be, and you know, he uh, he seemed to have fun with it. Um, I think he'd be a good interview, you know, just to talk about some of the stuff he ended up doing, how his career started, Italy, and yeah, how his career started and how it ended yeah. up. Well, Peter O'Brien had said he was actually quite nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think like, Mike Malloy had said that too. Yeah, it seems like everybody that's ever talked to him has said he's quite the gentleman. So Yeah, I, I think I'd like to, once our schedules aren't as insane, try to land an interview with Mitchum because I, he has a likability and kind of an, like an easygoing nature in mm-hmm. his films. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Here's one thing I will give kudos to Arizal for, in all seriousness. There's a few flashback sequences in the film. And most times I like to bag on films that do flashbacks when the flashback is flashing back to a scene earlier in the film. Yeah. But when he's thinking about his son in a flashback, it's like a scene at a theme park where it's footage that wasn't in the film. Yeah. Right? So yeah. that's a rarity to see someone flash back to something that's supposed to be a memory of something that wasn't already happening in the film. Right? So, I mean, kudos to Arizal for that. And the nom flashbacks are good because it just it gives Arizal more reason to have more action and explosions instead of narrative. Right, right. So, no, and I mean, here's the thing: Arizona makes a certain kind of cinema, but certain unpretentious or non-pretentious kind of cinema. I think for I'll tell you, and I mean this in all seriousness, for the the for what Arizona's aim is and and what he's trying to do, he is a master filmmaker. Yeah, no, dude, for what the type of films he makes, he's easily to me, he's easily the Indonesian filmmaker. The, the world film. I, I don't know that there's too many people that make his kind of films that is uh, complete, like complete high octane, low budget actioners without any pretension of of drama or anything else that just goes straight for the jugular. I don't know of anyone that does it better than him. You yes. know, now yeah. are his films clumsy and oafishant and stupid sometimes? Sure, but. As we always say, I mean, you have to judge a film what it's trying to accomplish. This is trying to entertain through insane action, and it does that from start to finish. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, kudos to him for the flashbacks. His villains love AKs. Um, Hanky is a henchman in this film. Uh, Mitchum fucking throws knives into sternums like it's going out of style in this one. Yes. <laughs> you guys get the knife to the sternum. He's very, very good with the knife. Oh, yeah. Um... It's too bad. There's uh, sadly there's a there's a, a henchman in this named Mr. Marcus, and it's unfortunate he wasn't a baseball hat wearing love machine. Yes, that is unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, 
lots of head-banded and satin baseball jacket-wearing henchmen in this. <laughs> the henchmen are amazing in this film. They are. That's what I'm saying. It's like almost every henchman that uh, you can think of in Indonesian cinema showed up to make this movie. Well, even um, even what's-his-name's cop partner. Uh, was he in the... He must have been in the stabilizer. And I think he was also... Um, the main good guy, the white cop in, in, in Lady Terminators, I think he was his partner in that. I think he uh, he's in it. There's a hen- a white henchwoman in this who's got an acid wash jumpsuit. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> that is. Uh, I don't think we get three minutes without hearing gunfire in this film. No, no, I don't think you do. I mean, this film, I mean, I had to keep the volume down. My son was taking a nap when I watched this movie. Oh, yeah. that was a, It was a tricky beast, let me tell you. I can imagine. Um, here's where Tarantino, I think, saw this film. There's a really large, like, largely written uh, revenge list in this that as we can see as Mitchum kills people, he crosses the name off with a purpose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Much like Beatrix Kiddo did in Kill Bill. Yes. Um, another week, another gold medallion wearing shirtless hunk. <laughs> so, you know. Oh, man. Female ninja saves the day, and that chick was hot, man. She was, man. I thought the same thing. Woman, wow. See, Arizawa is a man after heart because instead of just giving us car explosions, he ups the ante and gives us heaps and heaps of house explosions. Yes, every every building that they that Mitchum goes into, you know, is must be a building set up for demolition. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Um. Oh, man, I hope I can do this. This is something that would be more suited for you. (laughs) But the thing I love about Hawk is that, and that's, again, Mike Abbott, our main bad guy, is that he talks through the whole film in a Lord Humongous voice. (laughs) Shit, I'm working with a bunch of goddamn amateurs. (laughs) And then he he loves to shoot his henchmen and henchmen for no reason. Like During a meeting after he, he proclaims that lemony, when he shoots someone and he goes... No, he goes, you're forgetting one thing, Richard. The boss is always right. <laughs> and then he shoots the guy in the fucking stomach. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. And his boardroom is just like like a folding table with a glorified green poker felt cover on it. <laughs> which is yeah, great. That's a pretty good impersonation of him, though, because it's not so much um, Lord Humongous, but it, it, it's, it's this kind of tough guy actor <laughs> voice. And it, it's hilarious. It's, it's well, so and- bad. <laughs> And he's got this great line, too, when he says to Julia, he goes, Julia, I appreciate your loyalty. You'll be in charge of the computer room. (laughs) (laughs) The computer room. Uh, Awesome. Moving on up. Um, Mitchum wears like a Fila members-only jacket through most of the film, which is cool. Um, He also tortures the Indonesian Paul Calderon. By putting by putting like a donut shaped bomb on his dick. <laughs> Paul Calderon. <laughs> He's like the Indonesian Paul Calderon. The Indo- Paul Calderon almost looks Indonesian. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a good point. But he's got like this glazed donut bomb on the guy's lap. It's pretty great. That that, that bomb it, it almost looks like a flashlight. Or like a flashlight, or yeah, or like Dookie. Maybe. Um there's lots of ramps. 
lots of things get ramped in this. Like, how did he ramp that tomato truck? I don't know. There's there's a couple times he jumps his car. I don't know how he got it in the air. I don't know how. He, exactly. There's so many moments where things get ramped, and I don't know how. Um, like, there's that moment, too, with the car when it just avoids the train. Like, literally just avoids the train. Yes. Um, I got to give two airs on credit. He always has a really good physical helpful female counterpart in his films like it's not just like a macho dick swinging thing like in every one of his films i can think of there's a good able competent uh, female sort of uh, sidekick which you may think well that sounds a bit dismissive but a lot of action films is a boys club and he always makes sure to give a female a good role in his films for what they are yeah he does i mean he does do the sleaze as well but at the same time he does treat women with uh, respect of them he always gives a very strong yeah a uh, female character in their films. In his yeah, films. It totally does. Uh, there's no handguns apparently in Indonesia. <laughs> it's, all, uh, it's all semi-automatic weapons. It is, man. Well, you know, yeah. that's the truth. Abbott had a handgun, but, you know, he got thwarted by the <laughs> by the uh, headset of the phone, by the rotodial, bruh. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. And uh, it, Mitchum takes these henchmen when he's on his dirt bike through the most inhospitable terrain in all of Indonesia. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Great. Uh, oh, God, I could keep going. I got to cut this down really short because we're really pinched for time here. It's already seven. Uh, I love that with eight minutes left in our film, Hawk, Mike Abbott, gets a sex scene. <laughs> and, he, and then he says, he's talking about one of the women. He goes, I never, I never thought such a small head could hatch something like that. And then he continues with his sex scene after he's told that his compound's been compromised. <laughs> so... You know, and at this point, Mitchum is ramping into a building, bending backwards, doing yoga moves with an Uzi. And this is when Hawk realizes maybe he's got to get away from the sex for a minute. He's he's put his gray fucking briefs right beside the phone. So he picks up his fucking dirty gray briefs, puts them on. He doesn't even get out the door and he shoots at one of his female henchmen in the stomach for no reason. <laughs> for no reason. Um... And then, uh, yeah, the, he fights, you know, fights Mitch and blah, blah, blah. And uh, we kind of talked about the finale. I mean, it's, it, I don't even want to say exactly what happens, but it, it's one of the most illogical and at the same time incredible what the fuck <laughs> moments in the history of action cinema. It really is. I mean, it's, it's nuts. Yeah. You got you to gotta see it to believe it. Yeah. So those are all my notes. All right. Um, my make or break for this film is just uh, fucking the action, man. Fuck me. There's so much fucking action in this movie. Yeah, this movie it was insane. I mean, that's all. There's, this movie was this movie was the Tim Carey of Indonesian movies. <laughs> <laughs> fucking nuts, man. Jesus. <laughs> I like you, Johnny. Um. My score, I mean, my MVT for the film, I got to give this one to Arizal, man. Even though I like Mitchum a lot in this one, I can't remember who I gave it into in the stabilizer. Maybe I gave it to Peter O'Brien. Maybe I gave it to Arizal. I can't remember. But Arizal, he, he should be more celebrated. This guy, I would love to talk. I, wish, I wonder if this guy speaks English because I would love to talk to this guy. He's got to be one of the most interesting people to talk to. His, yeah. his, his idea of action in cinema is, it's, it's totally original. And at the same time, totally nuts and it just 
it, it, it's it's comic book before comic books almost. It's 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 insane. Just, it, no logic to his rhyme or reason to why he does the things he does. Just like it's, you know, it's for the purpose of action. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that's all it is. It's for the purpose of you know making things move. I mean, literally, it's just nuts. My score for the film, and you know, with a film like this, you gotta. We always say this with films like these. Look, you know, I know this film is not the killing. <laughs> okay, I know what this film is. All right, but for what this film is. This film is pretty amazing. I mean, it's up there in stabilizer territory. I mean, it's yeah. pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, you got to see it. You got to find it. You got to see it. It's it's nuts. It really is. My score for the film, though, is an 8 out of 10. Nice. Just because there's nothing that I didn't like about this movie. It was just nuts. And it's like 78 minutes long or something. Yeah, and both films were short this week, and it was nice yeah. and pleasant, and one of them was slightly different than the other. <laughs> but either way, I mean, this is this is crazy Indonesian cinema. This is what we talk about when we talk about Indonesian cinema. This is just craziness, mm-hmm. and uh, well worth your time, I think. Yeah, well, I'm I'm pretty much on par with you. My make or break, the whole film is just it's like I said. I, I love Arizal and I love his films because there isn't a hint of pretense. He's trying to entertain through high octane action with the budget and the means and the people he has at his disposal. He always does that. So for him to, to make a film and in the last 15 minutes, turn that up to 11 with the helicopter and the grenade and Mike Abbott in his fucking underwear and the phone nunchuck and just all this stuff, man. It's just insane. Uh, so my MVT is Arizal and my score is the exact same as yours. It's an eight out of 10. It's, oh man, it's so good. It's so entertaining. And is it, killing no but it's not trying to be and that's why i really love the beauty of our show and i love the way you and i have a very similar outlook that if a film sets out to do something and it does that you have to reward it on its own merits and this film has to be rewarded on its own merits of entertaining without a hint of pretense and just delivering the fucking goods man right right yeah that's a that's a good point i mean it he does make films that are entertaining you cannot you cannot tell me that i mean i think obviously this isn't the stabilizer but at the same it's, time, it's not far removed from that. Mm-hmm, it's, that mm-hmm. it's that special. And yeah. I, you know what's funny is I think the movie might, because I think the first 10, 15 minutes maybe, maybe first 10 minutes or so, mm-hmm. they are nothing like the rest of the movie. No, I know. I know. It's so strange. So if, if you watch this and you think, oh, these guys are full of shit, this movie's just a standard rape revenge type film, trust me. Hang in there, because it gets fucking nuts. Ooh, Hang in there for three more minutes. I just remembered that uh, Drake Stainer was in uh, that Commando Ming- Commander Mengele film. <laughs> Commander Mengele with Mitzum. That's right, Drake Stainer. Little Drakey there, bye. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that is the big show. That's it. Nice. Nice. Okay. I, I have so no idea what we're covering next week. Nor do I. And uh, the vanilla rice krispies have caught up with me. I gotta make this. I gotta make a quick exit. Silver and Gold Show Show OTC Hammockist Entrails from the Skeleton Closet Podcast on Fire Podcast without Honor and Humanity Cine Awesome Action Attraction Married with Clickers Paleo Cinema Girls on Film Come Back Where Are You Glee Cast Family Movie Night Thirty Five Millimeter Heroes Chin Stroker versus Punter NOTLP The Big Red Podcast Better in the Dark. V Cinema, Criterion Cast, Projection Booth, Mondo Film, uh, Love That Album, Movie Matchup, 
Hopeful Romantics. Check out Paracinema.net, NightmareTheater.blip.tv, We Are Young Monster, Teleport-City.com, A Man, A Kid, A Pony. I keep forgetting to add that to the podcast portion. These are all.blogspot.com, the GGTMC, Rupert Pupkin Speaks, Deadly Doll's House, Chuck Norris Ain't My Baby, Fist of B-List, Cinema Gonzo, Playground of Doom, Scared Shiftless and Shasta, Moon in the Gutter, Wax Mask, DeathRattle.net, LightningBugsLayer.com, We Like Stuff 2, A Hero Never Dies, The Freaking Awesome Network, uh, Feed My Ears on Facebook, uh, Oily Maniac, just started up his blog, which is onlymaniac.blogspot.com. Check out our sponsors, DiabolicDVD.com, Cinema-DE-Bazaar.com, uh, promo code GENTLEMEN for 10% off your orders, OMG-Entertainment.com, GGTMC10 for 10% off your orders, BoulevardMovies.com, Camera Obscura, it's camera with a K, Facebook.com, Twitter.com, backslash GGTMC, large volume, Pickle of 10, Uncool Cat, Bob Freelander, etc., uh, over on uh, Rube's blog, there's a lot of bad movie lists coming out from people, including Neck, Emily, and a host of others that are really cranking out some good lists. Uh, iTunes reviews are great. And that's it. That's all. Nice. Nice. What do you want to do next week? You want to do something? You want to do some... I'm looking through the list of stuff, and a lot of people want to be on, so it's kind of tough to schedule that with short notice. I'm going to set some stuff up. Yeah, we're gonna have to start setting some stuff up. Yeah, we're gonna have to start getting some stuff going. Uh, you want to do a pick again? You want to do a pick again? What? Okay. Um, I know what I'm gonna pick. You do? Yes, I do. Should we do a cinema? No. Okay. Uh, you don't want to do a cinema. Do, do. And then me and you will get together behind the scenes and figure out how we want to tackle these last these these ones that we still have to do for the Kickstarter. Right. 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 I'll okay. send you an email and we'll just kind of schedule it out. We need to schedule it out because some of the stuff. Yeah, it, it needs scheduling. Um, why don't you talk about what you want to pick? Okay. Um, and then uh, give me about a minute at least to try to come up with something here. I'm going to stay in 86. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to go with a little something, something that, uh, you know, the Blu-ray is available recently. This film stars. Let me read the. Let me read the cast to you. Terry Funk, uh, <laughs> Susan Blakely, Rick Zumwalt. <laughs> Rick Zumwalt. <laughs> this is directed by Menahem Golan. Oh, I like where you. Yeah, this I'm film is also good. known as uh, Meet Me Halfway. And this film is uh, one that I've promised coverage of for a long time, and fuck it, we're going to do it, man. This is uh, Over the Top, Sylvester Stallone, 1986. Yeah, boy. <laughs> Very just, nice. I haven't seen it. Uh, the Blu-ray's out there. It's available. It's coming from Netflix to my house uh, this week. And fuck it, bro. I want to talk that motherfucker. want to talk about some Lincoln Hawk. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Very good. Very good. Okay, well, I'm also going to drop one that I promised coverage for. Not not for as, anywhere near as long, but for a little while lately. I know a lot of people wanted to cover it. When I threw it up on uh, on our boards, on our, our Facebook group, but what the cover, it's from the Shaw Brothers. It's a gritty, grimy crime film from the Shaw Brothers in the 70s. We're going to do Men from the Gutter. Ooh, nice, nice. Nice. 
What a show. <laughs> yeah, going to be a fucking cool show, man. I don't know what we're going to call that. <laughs> Over the top and in the gutter? Who uh, knows? So fuck, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to figure that one out. Men on top? I don't men know. on top? <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a sweaty mess. <laughs> Over the gutter? Yeah. It's going to be a sweaty mess of a show. It is. <laughs> Because what I remember, I haven't seen Over the Top in like at least 10 years. And what I remember from it is everybody's a sweaty mess. Oh, I remember Rick Zumwalt's the big bald dude with the mustache, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, now I remember. And he's got that red fucking sleeveless t-shirt. He's just a thick bastard. We got to talk that movie. We've we've talked about it long enough and it's it's time to talk. It's it's so GGTMC it hurts. Yeah, it's close to my heart, man. My dad was a trucker and... uh, to the boy and the truck trucker dad so that's gonna be cool to revisit that man it's really near and dear to my heart all right all right so that's next week's show men from the gutter and over the top uh <laughs> yeah, some, awesome some over the top cinema for you guys yes some more uh, you know i had a lot of fun talking over the top cinema just recently so i kind of wanted to stay in that vein it was fun it I mean, is fun we're gonna uh turn our we're gonna turn our caps backwards yeah. yes that's right yeah <laughs> All right, guys, that's the big show. With that, I'll say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.